The scripture reading for today is 2 Corinthians 11, 16 through 33. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. The word of the Lord. Amen. Welcome to the Pandora. My name is Mark. If you're new... Uh, we are now in the fifth Sunday of Eastertide. Uh, if you can believe it, it seems like it was a while ago now that Easter took place, and yet Christians all over the world are still celebrating, many of them still having festivity in honor of the resurrection reality of Easter, continuing to celebrate that season for the seven weeks following Easter all the way up to the Pentecost. And we as a community are marginally contributing uh, to that, if not in festivity, then at least in content. We've been spending our time here on Sundays thinking about the resurrection reality of Jesus and specifically how it is that that resurrection life manifests in the people of God. We've been looking at how that resurrection life of Jesus manifested in the life of the Apostle Paul. That the Apostle Paul thought about his life and his ministry as having come out of the very biography of Jesus. Everything that was happening to him and everything that he was doing 
he interpreted as happening to Christ and being done by Christ. In other words, he thought of himself as a body part of Jesus, as an extension of the life and body of Jesus. And this is a wholly appropriate way for not just apostolic figures like Paul to think of life as a Christian, but for all believers to think of our life in this way. It's right and good. What it means to be a Christian, in fact, is that our lives have become wrapped up into the life of Christ. We are a part of his very body, a part of his very life. That is to say, we no longer have any identity apart from him. All that we are is wrapped up in him. We are an extension of him. We are the outworking of him. As Paul says, we fill up the sufferings that are lacking in him, in Christ Jesus. We carry on his very life in a true sense. That means that you cannot take responsibility for your own life as an individual. You are no longer your own. You do not belong to you. Jesus now has taken responsibility for all of you. He has taken responsibility for your sin, for your shame, for your good works. And you are merely a participant in him. You share in him. And so in that sense, you do share in the responsibility in that you are one with him, connected to him, but you do not face the responsibility of your own life alone. You face it in Christ, with his mind, his head directing you, his body, his atoning death, owning all that it is that you do and say and think and are. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be wrapped up into the life of Christ. Paul understood this reality, and he treasured it. He learned to live out of this identity and to minister out of this identity such that he was not surprised when he began to endure physical hardship. He was not surprised when he experienced being mocked Because body parts of Christ go through hardship. Body parts of Christ are mocked and spit upon. We know that from the life of Christ. We can look at Jesus and have a demonstration of what our life will be as we are caught up into him. And so Paul was not taken off guard or taken by surprise, I should say, when this began to happen to him. But this was rather confusing for many of the churches where Paul ministered. Because those churches, many of them were full of Christians who were not as awake to this reality of union with Christ. And so when they started to see Paul maligned and rejected and scoffed at and mocked and belittled and made fun of, when they saw his life fall apart... Many of them interpreted this as a sign that he lacked apostolic authority, that he was not God's man, that God was not protecting him, God was not blessing him. And so they began to discount the authority of his life and thereby discount the authority of his teaching and wonder as to whether he was in fact a legitimate or credible 
apostle. Perhaps especially this was true in Corinth. In all the cities where Paul planted churches, Corinth was the most cosmopolitan of them. Corinth was a city where the cultural values of the day elevated winners. Winners militarily were elevated in Corinth, winners economically, winners socially, winners rhetorically. If you were on top, if you were powerful in the way the Corinthians defined that, in the way the world defines that, then you would be respected. You would be seen as a legitimate authority, someone worth listening to. And so here comes Paul limping into that culture, wounded, a nobody, mocked, maligned, rejected, something of a mess. It's no surprise that the churches in Corinth began to question Paul's legitimacy almost as soon as he had left town. In other words, when he was there in presence, when he could minister to the Corinthians in person, he was able to continually steer them back into this ministry of loss and weakness that he believed to be the ministry of Christ, that he believed to be the true gospel of Jesus. But once he had left, almost immediately, new leaders began to emerge in the Corinthian community that were preaching an entirely different gospel in an entirely different spirit. They were preaching a gospel that accorded with the cultural value of Corinth. And these new leaders that were emerging were maligning Paul. They were mocking Paul as someone not worth following. And these new leaders that were emerging in Corinth were of the sort that the Corinthians would have valued, would have thought legitimate. They were physically imposing figures who spoke with soaring speech and rhetoric. Their teaching was captivating. Their presence was captivating. They were rhetorical and physical winners. And they were making light of Paul and gaining a great following in Corinth. And so Paul then begins writing letters back to this church in Corinth, back to these gatherings of Christians in Corinth, hoping that in his letters he can steer them back to what was the gospel that he first ministered to them. And we've been spending our time in one of those letters, the book of 2 Corinthians, as it comes to us. And we find ourselves now near the end of that book. And Paul is directly contesting with these new, prestigious VIP leaders that are emerging in Corinth. He is addressing the false message that they are teaching there in Corinth. And in our text last week, he was so bold as to call them false apostles, that they are false ministers. What's more, he said that they are ministers who are disguising themselves as ministers of Christ. They're coming in the name of Christ. They're professing Christians. They are claiming to be ministering the spirit of Christ, and yet they are in fact ministering the spirit of the age. They are teaching something that accords with the cultural value of Corinth rather than with the life of Christ. These false leaders, Paul says, are boastful and shameless men. He begins to call them out openly. 
And in our text today, he is going to continue to do that, to expose them as false. But today, with a bit of an ironic twist. Uh, Today's text that we read just a moment ago drips with sarcasm. Paul is going to employ sarcasm, a favorite tool of mine, and perhaps some of yours, uh, to make light of these false leaders, these boastful and shameless men who lead like tyrants. These were men who, they claimed moral and intellectual superiority for themselves, and then made demands of their followers on the basis of that superiority. It was an I-know-better kind of leadership that accorded with the cultural values in Corinth and did violence to the Christians in these Corinthian churches. They were despots. They were plundering the churches for their own shameful and personal gain. And somehow this kind of tyrannical behavior had earned them quite a following. And so Paul means to undermine this following by highlighting the ungodliness of these leaders, the lack of Christ-likeness in them. And so he begins by sarcastically playing the fool. We read it a moment ago in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying With this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or even strikes you in the face. He says, you Corinthians are giving yourselves over to these fools these leaders who are plundering you, these leaders who are making demands of you, these leaders who are threatening you, using violence to lead you, putting on airs and claiming their own superiority, Paul says, maybe I should too. Maybe I should lead like that also. Maybe I should play the fool as well. Maybe I should abandon the way of the Lord also. You can hear the sarcasm here. He's taking on this presumed role of a fool and mocking that role in and of himself in a way of indirectly mocking these leaders that the Corinthians have given over to, have been given over to. He says, maybe I should be like them. I should abandon the way of the Lord. Maybe I should start bragging, should start threatening, should start demanding money from you. Seems like you prefer that kind of abusive authority to the way of Jesus. And so perhaps if I start leading in that capacity, I will finally have your ear again. You'll start listening to me here. You can see what Paul is doing. He is very bitingly and sarcastically cutting down these false leaders and shaking the people of Corinth. It's as though he's grabbing them and saying, wake up. You are being duped. You're following these phonies, these frauds. They are not in it for your good. They do not love you. They do not care for you. They are in it for themselves. Can't you see through all of their boasting, all of their shenanigans? 
Have you ever gotten duped by leaders like these? Think of the story of your own life. Have you ever found yourself, maybe you woke up one day and realized that you were following this kind of despotic leadership? You were following a leader or leaders who were in it for themselves, were not seeking your own good. You sort of began to see through the leadership, all the lies, all the boasting, all the self-aggrandizing. Probably most of us at some point in our lives have realized that we were following such leaders. Perhaps others of us are presently following such leaders in our workplace, in our family, wherever it may be, and maybe have not realized it yet. The truth is that people are, are uh, drawn to that kind of authoritarian leadership, much in the same way that bugs are to a fly zapper. We swarm around that kind of authoritarian leadership to our own demise often. Despotic, braggadocious, brash, boastful leaders who show no sign of weakness and are an ever steady flow of confidence and surety and certainty, they often have very large followings. Now, why is that? Why is it that tyrants throughout history, both in the church and outside of it, are able to attract so many followers so readily, so frequently? What is it in us that is given over to being duped by that kind of authoritarian leadership? Well, that's a complicated question. I'm sure there are lots of different answers, answers that come from lots of different angles of psychology and sociology and what have you. But I think chief among those answers is something fundamental in us, a core assumption of our fallen humanity, of our worldliness. And that is that we are convinced that salvation comes among the strong. That strength will be the source of our rescue. We all live our lives aware, whether consciously or subconsciously, of something being wrong. That there are things that are broken about ourselves, about our world. We are all ever searching, scanning the horizon for where our rescue might be. And our natural assumption is that our rescue will come from strength. That our rescue will come from someone or something strong. And that actually makes perfect sense. It's perfectly understandable why we would assume that. That's actually true according to the way our world operates. That moment in your life when you or a loved one requires a surgery of some kind, you of course want the surgeon who was top of the class 
from Johns Hopkins and not some clown with an internet degree. You want the surgeon who's proven, world-renowned. When nonprofit organizations seek to raise funds for their cause, for some good mission, some work that might improve their community or improve the world, they line up meetings with wealthy people. They don't line up meetings with college students or children. (laughs) Because salvation comes from the strong. Or at its most base level, if you were, say, finding yourself slipping off a cliff, sure death was hundreds of feet below, there was only enough time for one friend to reach out and grab your arm, you would hope that it was that friend who had seen the inside of a gym and not your scrawny friend who had no chance of holding on. In our world, strength saves. In our world, if you are strong or if you know the strong, your life will work better Your life will sort of click along at a better pace. Things will fall into place more easily. There will be less hardship. And so this assumption that salvation comes from strength, it's entirely predictable. Our impulse to run toward leaders who have no apparent weakness it's bound up in that same assumption. It's also connected to that same impulse in all of us to not bear our own weakness. We don't want people to know of our weakness. We don't want ourselves to know of our own weakness. We are ever covering it up, ever hiding it, or at least we think we are. Because we are convinced that what is good, what will save, what will rescue, can only be found among the strong, or at least the strength in ourselves. In our world, it is strength that saves. So you can hardly blame the Corinthians, because we are the Corinthians. (laughs) When they have a choice between which sort of leader they would follow— And they are looking at these new and emerging leaders in their community who are well put together, who are wealthy, who are healthy, who are well-dressed, who speak well, who give riveting messages, whose teaching captivates their hearts. Should they follow these leaders or should they give themselves over by contrast to this meandering, suffering wanderer called Paul who can't hold a room when he speaks? who's become a nobody for the sake of the gospel. What possible good could come from following him? What possible rescue? What possible better outcomes in life could come from hearing the message of Paul when we have these clear winners in front of us that we can follow? This is what's so mysterious about the ministry of the gospel because the ministry of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the message of Paul has nothing in it that resonates 
with the natural sensibilities of our world. There's nothing about the gospel that is attractive to natural people. Now, as ministers of the gospel, we often, I myself included, often try to pretend as though that's not true because it can get rather lonely ministering the gospel. Many of you who are Christians know that. We try to dress the gospel up, include something in it that would resonate with natural people, that would resonate more with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our spouses, with our children, with ourselves. We make hype-filled promises that the gospel does not make and then attach the name of Jesus to them. But the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus, has nothing in it for natural people. Its only promise to them is death. It's a rescue that natural people wouldn't choose, a rescue that they wouldn't want. And this is why ministering the gospel of Jesus is such mysterious work. It doesn't operate according to strength. It is the only message of rescue and salvation that does not operate according to strength. It is not another late-night infomercial promising better outcomes in your life. It is not the infomercial to end all infomercials promising all the better outcomes in your life. It operates in an entirely different way. And Paul is sarcastically pointing this out, trying to help the Corinthians see this. Listen to how he flips the world and the world's value system on its head, starting in verse 21. Paul says, To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. That is to say, he and his fellow ministers, they were too weak to operate in that way of strength like these super apostles. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking here like a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonment, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Paul says, you want strength? I can give you strength. These new leaders, they're Hebrews, I'm a Hebrew. They're Israelites, I'm an Israelite. They're offspring of Abraham, I am the offspring of Abraham. But as he gets rolling in this list of boasts, Paul suddenly flips the boasting on its head. He says, I can play the fool also. 
I can play this game of comparing ourselves one to another. But as a servant of Christ, as a true and legitimate servant of Christ, what are my true boasts are not the boasts of the world. What I have to boast of is not what the world is interested in. And that is my weakness. What legitimizes me as a servant of Christ, as an apostle of Christ, the reason you ought to listen to my message and not the message of these super apostles is that I share in the fellowship of his sufferings. I have been caught up into the weakness of Christ. I am living in the weakness of Christ. I am being crushed and I am letting the world see it. Because this is what it means to be a servant of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Is to have your weakness spill out all over the floor for all to see. To no longer go on playing the shell game of covering up and pretending that you are only strong. It means to become well acquainted with your own weakness to live with it before your own face let me ask you what is your first impulse when a friend approaches you and confesses some sin some shame some suffering a friend comes to you and volunteers some struggle in their life. My first impulse is to coach them out of it. My first impulse is to offer them sage advice that will lead to better outcomes in that person's life. If a person comes to me and says, Mark, I have spent myself into enormous credit card debt. I'm spiraling out of control I'm on the brink of losing my apartment, my house, my condo, whatever it may be. My initial impulse is to rejoice. You have come to the right man. As one who has never been in credit card debt, hey, (laughs) let me show you the way out. Let me coach you into better outcomes. Let me show you how to live in these green pastures beside these still waters. I will mentor you and raise you up into my strength. I'm ministering in strength to that person. I'm offering them a ministry of strength. And isn't that right? Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that what that person needs? to be coached out of this way of folly and into this better way. Well, Paul is saying here that the ministry of Christ is a very different kind of ministry than that. And it's a kind of ministry that we easily overlook. It's a kind of ministry that's not our natural impulse because it's a kind of ministry that doesn't make any sense. 
it's a ministry of weakness, and it's the ministry of Christ. In the ministry of Christ, the aim is not that we would come to better life outcomes. The ministry of Christ, the aim is not that our lives would begin to flow in better natural order and rhythm, that we'd sort of have our world well put together. In the ministry of Christ, the aim is communion. The ministry of Christ, the purpose is to enter into fellowship with one another and with the Lord. It's to know and be known. So when my friend comes to me and confesses credit card debt, that their life is spiraling out of control financially, they may well need some financial counseling. But for me to dive into that ministry of strength in that moment of vulnerability is to forfeit the opportunity there to know this person. You see, I'm being duped by the situation of this person and not paying attention to the person. The truth is that the brokenness in any one person that leads them into, say, massive credit card debt or any other calamitous situation is the same brokenness that is in me, just different symptoms. For me to rush in and treat symptoms with ministries of strength is to quickly brush aside what may have been a very risky and vulnerable offering of personhood, of brokenness. When a friend comes to you for help, they are not merely coming to get their life back in order, even if consciously that's all that's on their mind. The true rescue of our souls, the true nourishment of our hearts and lives is found in solidarity. It's found in fellowship. It's found in communion. And when someone comes and speaks vulnerably of their own brokenness, know this, you share in that brokenness, though it may manifest differently. What it means to minister the person of Christ is to pay more attention to the person than you do the situation. To be present such that you are offering yourself rather than merely your strengths. Actually, I have found that often when I attempt to minister strength to someone who is being vulnerable, someone who is even asking for help, if I meet them in the way that they are asking it cuts off relationship. It reduces the opportunity for fellowship. I take on the role of sage rather than friend. And when I give advice, which is why I so rarely do anymore, it's about the worst thing that I can do for the relationship creates this intrigue in the relationship. Now, if the person takes my advice and it blows up in their face, that's about the end of it. If they don't take my advice, that's about the end of it. Better to offer 
personhood. But that requires weakness. That requires that I be in solidarity with them, that I be as vulnerable as they are being, that I offer as much of myself as they are offering in order that we might enter into a real relationship. Weakness is the soil of fellowship. Weakness is where mutual knowledge of one another grows. Not in strength. In our world, of course, it's strength that saves. But in the ministry of Christ, it's weakness because in weakness, we come to commune with one another. We come to pay attention to one another. Paul says, this is the sort of ministry that I'm involved in. It's to cultivate that soil of weakness, that there might be real communion, that there might be real fellowship. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The truth is, we are all weak. And that is not our fallenness. Our fallenness is pretending that we are strong. We were made to be weak. We were made to live in weakness. We were made to live wholly dependent on our good father, like little children who don't worry about trying to orchestrate their lives and figure everything out because dad will take care of it. We were made to live in that childlike weakness, that childlike dependency. When our weakness comes before us, when our weakness is exposed, when it's made known, we are nearer to who we truly are. As we awaken to our weakness, we are nearer to that childlike state that God intends us to live in. We cover over it with our strength, with our ministries of strength. We rush back into the system of our world where things make sense, where it's up to us to order our lives and make our lives work better. Paul says, I I'm in the ministry of weakness. Jesus was weak. It's very common, actually, to read the gospel accounts of Jesus and to see him in those accounts as strong to see him as an example of strength for us to aspire to. What a worthless way to read the Gospels. Do not aspire to be strong. Be like Jesus and acknowledge that you are weak. Jesus lived in perpetual dependence on his Father. He said all that he was doing comes from the hand of his Father. He does not so much as speak a word except for it be the word of his Father. He lived in total dependency and weakness. 
because that is what it means to be truly human. That's what it means for us to become human, to become fully human in the way that God intended. It's for us to live up into that same weakness of Jesus, to live with Jesus, to be united in his weakness with him. You see, it's only in weakness that we come to know communion with each other. It's only in weakness that we come to know ourselves. It's only in weakness that we come to know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Jesus. Thank you for living in him for our sake. Thank you for the revelation that he is to us, what he teaches us about you and about ourselves and about each other. We ask for your spirit to fill us, that the spirit of your son would reign in us, that we would let go of the ways we cover over our weakness, that we would be free like children and trust you. Amen.